Welcome to Planet Poetry. I'm Peter Kenny. And I'm Robin Houghton. And today we're looking at the uncanny. We'll be talking to Tess Jolly about the thread of uncanniness that runs deep in her poetry. And Peter's also going to be talking with Christian Coupland, editor of Neon, a literary magazine with a flavour of horror and science fiction. Plus, Robin's been grasping the thorn of rejection and working out how to cope with it. Oh, I know. It's a tough one, but, you know. Yeah, for me too. But to get us in the mood for a focus on the unsettling and strange, what's the poem you've got to kick us off with? Well, the poem I'm going to read is by Joy Harjo, who's the US Poet Laureate, and it's called Call It Fear. There is this edge where shadows and bones of some of us walk backwards, talk backwards. There is this edge, call it an ocean of fear of the dark, or name it with other songs. Under our ribs, our hearts are bloody stars. Shine on, shine on, and horses in their galloping flight strike the curve of ribs. Heartbeat, and breathe back sharply. Breathe backwards. There is this edge within me. I saw it once, an August Sunday morning when the heat hadn't left this earth, and good luck sat sleeping next to me in the truck. We had never broken through the edge of the singing at 4am. We had only wanted to talk, to hear any other voice to stay alive with. And there was this edge, not the drop of sandy rock cliff, bones of volcanic earth into Albuquerque, not that, but a string of shadow horses kicking and pulling me out of my belly, not into the Rio Grande, but into the music barely coming through, Sunday church singing from the radio, battery worn down, but the voices talking backwards. I love the... um idea of reversing time is such a simple idea but it just kind of puts everything going in the wrong direction it's quite unnerving it is it is and it reminds me of you know that thing when you play the the record backwards there's that really really weird unearthly sound that you get from doing that i mean i do that a lot don't you peter (laughs) all the time (laughs) it's barely a moment That poem was the, the first in a, a favourite book of mine called She Had Some Horses. And that kind of idea of going backwards crops up time and time again in that. Like in that poem, there's this sense of all these horses coming out of a stomach. And th- these are almost like tribal animals or the spirits of you know people in her past kind of surging out to answer and kind of run backwards. And the, the whole book's about sort of seeking a lost identity. Yeah, just highly recommended. But yeah, thanks. That's such that's like, yeah. slightly edgy kind of slightly edgy. And I think we're ready now, aren't we, for your interview, Peter, with Tess Jolly. I first became aware of Tess Jolly's work when I was attending a stanza meeting. It was a privilege to hear her workshopping her mysteriously magnetic poems. A winner of the Hamish Cannon Prize and the Anne Bourne Prize, Tess has released two excellent pamphlets both in 2016, Touch Papers from Eyewear and Thus the Blue Hour Comes from Indigo. 
As a reader, encountering Tess's work always provokes one word in my head, spellbinding. Some of her published work has the quality of a dark fairy tale where you get glimpses of terrifying, almost gothic imagery that you can't quite pull away from. With her new collection, Breakfast at the Origami Cafe, I'm delighted to welcome Tess Jolly to the podcast. Hi, Peter. Thank you for welcoming me. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, we've had a few technical problems, so uh, <laughs> we're delighted to be able to speak to one another. Right, Tess, lockdown, pandemic, national crisis. How have you coped and has it affected your writing? Um, I have to say when it first happened, I quite enjoyed a less sort of stressful day-to-day life. Um, and a lot of the things that I normally find quite stressful or just busy weren't there. So I found it quite um, a relief and quite relaxing at first as it went on um, less so. But I think the main way um, that we've coped as a family is by having a routine and a shape to the day. Yeah, I'm at home with my my children. So um, it's quite difficult to find the, the sort of mental space to write. And I think also just with everything that's going on in the world, it's hard to find that inner stillness and concentration that you need for writing. So today's podcast is loosely themed around the idea of the uncanny. The Oxford Dictionary defines uncanny as strange or mysterious, especially in an unsettling way. Do you rebel at the idea that your um, work has an element of the uncanny to it? No, not at all, Peter. No, I don't. I think um, I've always felt intrigued and haunted by the idea of the strange um, and the mysterious. Um, And as part of my master's degree in creative and critical writing, I was introduced to a book called The Uncanny by the lecturer Nicholas Royal. He interprets the uncanny as um, something strange, weird and mysterious, but he also interrogates the way in its German translation, Unheimlich, it suggests something unhomely at the heart of hearth and home. And I think especially in my second pamphlet, Thus the Blue Hour Comes, this is an element which fascinated me in my writing. Because there is that kind of element of scariness about the domestic, which I really like. I think there's one of one of your poems, Crab Water, from uh, the pamphlet Touch Papers. Can, could you read that for us? Because I think that's a great jumping off point, as it were. Crab Water. Listening to the Hobbit on car journeys, chasing each other to school or slouched at the kitchen table, my legs swinging, his anchored to the floor. One of us would shriek the code name, and we'd both hunch knees to chests, pretend to be scared as the ground gave way to glittering blue and silver carapaces, giant razor crabs screeching and rattling scales in rock pools of pavement or lino. We'd dare each other to dip toes in deep, infested water, the winner resisting longest. I can't remember the last time we played. When he left, I sat cross-legged on my bed, whispered crab water again. And I thought I saw my face reflected in the carpet that shimmered and swirled. Then I too was gone. I just love that for all kinds of reasons. There's the idea of dipping your toes into something that's imaginary. Also, that the end where you say... And I thought I saw my face reflected in the carpet that shimmered and swelled. Then I too was gone. There's something about sinking into the imagination, just falling into that sense of uncanniness and uncertainty. It was that a conscious attempt to do that. 
No, not at all. It's interesting that you've picked that poem out as it was inspired by a game that my brother and I used to play and perhaps just came out of a place of, of boredom where we would suddenly declare any space, kind of the footwell in the car or under the table or on the stairs to be crab water. And then it would just be this game that we'd have to keep our feet out of it and see who could last the longest. Um, so it was just inspired by sort of fond memories of that. But then I think also my brother left home before I did and I remember feeling a sense of loss when that happened um, so that was what um, I guess I addressed um, at the end of the poem this kind of loss of the homely as, the, as what was safe um, and known vanishes. Well I think that you know having the imagination is a double-edged sword anyway and I, I love this notion of the imaginary games. Could I ask you to read the night light from Thus the Blue Hour Comes? The night light. I'm trying to think of nice things like mother said but the stars I thought were fixed are slipping. The tendons holding each white bone are slack. Moon is no longer moon. It is a spinal cord of light pulsing dark water in which the counting sheep have drowned. My throat is stuffed with wool. Uncle Jack's glass eye stares from my pillow. The wardrobe crosses the floor. Something only I can see moves beyond its shadow. Now, you've got to say that's pretty creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think certainly in this collection um, or this pamphlet, Thus the Blue Air Comes, I was definitely much more consciously playing with ideas of something uncanny. I mean, it's a brilliant poem to start a collection with because everything's like slipping from true. You know, in this poem, the stars are not where they should be. And tendons, the things that hold the body together, have slackened. And and also there's that overriding sense of being in a, a room full of horrors on your own, you know, with something like a glass eye. What place does, you know, that being aloneness have in creating this atmosphere? So I think that the poems sort of do come from experiences in which um, or experiences which themselves came from a place of aloneness and perhaps wanting to communicate those experiences reach out from that place to other people um say this is this is where i'm speaking from and have other people experience that too i think and also i do need to i, I either need to be alone to do my writing or i need to be in amongst people that i don't know and who don't need anything from me so i think being alone in that place of solitude is quite important to allow the creativity to come so you're one of those people that when you go into a cafe, we see sitting in the corner, scribbling furiously. When I get the time to, yes, yeah, <laughs> I do. For even if I'm at home and my family are around, even if um, there, I've got some time, even if everyone's occupied, I still find it quite difficult to have that um, sort of focus that I need because I'm sort of still my antennae are out still towards them. I suppose it's I need yeah. to feel, yeah, I need to feel kind of not needed and alone within people to be able to come to that place. There's, I find that your work is extremely beautiful, and there's this quote from Rilke, which I, I kind of wheel out at every possible opportunity. Um, <laughs> but in um, the first of his Duino elegies, he says, um, beauty's nothing but the beginning of terror we are still just able to bear, and why we adore it so is because it serenely disdains to destroy us. In your work, do you think there's a relationship between beauty and terror? 
it's quite I find it quite a difficult question because I I totally agree yes there is a relationship between those two things and I think they could be seen as sort of opposite sides of the one the one thing but it's something that I find quite hard to articulate um and in some ways it feels quite overwhelming and quite a difficult thing um to face um but I think they're definitely two extremes and people have said um that if you're sort of able to experience intense pain or difficulty, then you're also able to appreciate great beauty as well. So I definitely think there's a link, but it's something that I find quite ineffable. What I wonder when people write poetry that has uncanniness and a, a scary edge to it, I, I wonder about catharsis. You know, is this a kind of alchemy that you're doing that turns fearful things into beautiful ones? Yes, I think so. And I think um, my poetry for me is definitely um, a way of processing uncomfortable experiences and imaginings um, and a way of coming to terms with those things. I definitely feel if I can create a poem that I'm happy with from a difficult or unsettling experience, then that enables me to come to terms with it a bit and to move on in some way. But equally, if I'm not able to do that, it can make it even more disturbing, I think. Yeah, that this terrible thing can't even be wrestled with in a poem. Yeah, and I think poetry, especially when you're sort of dealing with form and line breaks and structure, it's it's a way of containing something. It's a shape that contains something that perhaps feels quite uncontainable. Um, so that definitely feels healing to me. In um, horror films, the bit that's always most terrifying is, for me at least, and I think for most people, is the bit before you get to see the monster. You know, when it comes out with its latex or CGI wobbly bits and things, you know, all the fear or most of the fear evaporates. But in your poems, I think the thing that's causing the fear and this climate of mysterious, magical anxiety is, is never really made explicit. Is this a deliberate decision on your part? Um, I don't remember consciously deciding to do that, but I was very much aware of the fear, the experience of the fear itself feels more compelling than what it was that caused it and more relatable. I think different people um, are fearful of different things and what will trigger intense fear in one person won't be what triggers intense fear in another. But I think those people could relate to the shared experience of fear. Um, a little like, I suppose, addiction, that people might be addicted to different things, but the experience itself is relatable um, between them. And I think by not explicitly naming the fear, that allows the reader to fill in the gaps with their own um, personal interpretations. And it, it seems to me that fear is caused by the threat of danger or pain or harm, by a threat to our survival. And we're all, to a greater or lesser degree, involved in a battle for this survival. Um, so I think, yeah, that's that's the more important part of it for me. I had, um, in my 20s, I had whole seasons of panic attacks where I'd have like six or seven panic attacks a day. That sense of uh, fear itself being the thing is something I, I, as a reader, absolutely strongly identify with this. I think maybe fear is quite hard to write about. And that's what really compels me about what you're doing is that actually, in, in some ways, I'm not saying all your poems are like this, but in the ones that we're looking at today, that fear is the subject. And, and that's quite a novel and brave thing to be taking on. There's this poem of yours, Clock, which has got these really uncanny moments in it. Will you read it for us? Yeah. Clock. Have I eaten enough today? Have I been my own good mother? 
ghosts cower in the corner amongst the dregs of last night's dream. The hide-and-seek clock goes tick-tock, tick-tock to the opening and closing of locks in my throat. A letterbox rat-a-tat-tats in wind that blows across my skull. I'm a doll in a display case, darkened and lit, darkened and lit, as gloved fingers delight in pressing the little switch. Yeah, I love that thing of somebody else being in control, not you that's pressing the switch, which is quite terrifying. There's this thing about dolls, though, as well, that at the end, there's the eye of the poem that's like a doll in a glass case. That's the image, isn't it? It is, I think. And I think dolls, in a similar way to clowns, perhaps, can be quite kind of scary things, I think, because they're kind of like we were saying earlier about the idea of the uncanny being something domestic that's kind of known but not quite known. The dolls are a replica of of a human baby or whatever, but not quite. And, yeah, I think there is definitely something quite disturbing about them. That poem, I mean, the um, that image at the end, actually, I'd been to Hove Museum and I don't know if you've ever been there, but there are, they, I don't know if there still are even, but there certainly were these drawers that you could pull out with a kind of a perspex cover over them with all these bits of dolls, these limbs in there. And you could just pull it out and push it in and pull the other one out and push it in. And <laughs> that sort of that I was writing the poem and then that image came came to mind. So that's where that particular part comes from. I think that's a, that's an archetypical test jolly moment in my head now. <laughs> <laughs> you looking at dismembered parts of dolls. <laughs> it was a it was a family day out with my children. <laughs> so that thing, you know, there, there's that Freud essay, isn't there, about the uncanny? But one of the things I thought he was missing was, well, he was saying that, and this is a paraphrase, that something like the ghost in Hamlet cannot be uncanny because Shakespeare chose to depart from reality and Shakespeare chose to write it. And we as playgoers or readers have entered into this agreement that, that that's fine because we understand that it's an invention. But I think what he's missing is this idea of, you know, us sympathising with the protagonist who is being scared. You know, when I'm successfully being scared by literature it's because I've identified with the eye of whatever's going on in the poem mostly in your poems there's this sense that um, these horrific things shouldn't be accepted you know there's a there's a kind of residual sense that these are really scary but there's one poem in called the the cliff path which is really dreamlike would you read that for us yeah the cliff path She tells me it's my turn. I follow her down long corridors, past scapula, clavicle, pelvis, rib, woven into wreaths hanging on every door, through the trees, onto the cliff path. Shadows lengthen before us, creatures disturbed in magic mirrors, genies summoned from bottles. I can see the house in the distance, the ghosts lingering like breath on its windows. Yeah, I love that. What I find creepy about that is the obedience with which the eye of the poem just is drawn into that creepy situation. I know this is really cheesy, but it sort of makes me think of somebody like a bride of Dracula, somebody that's been <laughs> finally sucked in you know, to the darkness and embraced it. I think that's kind of what that pamphlet that has that thread running through it this this she character is this kind of dominant controlling 
thing that the that the eye is trying to release themselves from and not always able to. So yeah, that's definitely the sort of the theme that's coming through there, I think. At the end of the day, are you pleased that you scare your readers or um, <laughs> or does your um, writing just come out like that? I didn't set out to scare people, but I'm pleased if that experience and feeling um, has been conveyed, then yes, I am pleased. It wasn't sort of a, a deliberate um, intention to scare my reader. Mm. But I suppose the experience from which I was writing was quite a scary one. So if that's what's being conveyed, then I feel pleased. Yeah. Well, it's great. You know, it's great to feel something when you when you read a book of poetry. You know, I mean, a book of poetry always has got kind of designs on us to to manipulate our emotions. But I didn't have to work hard to connect to these emotions and be really moved. Tess, you've got this new book out, Breakfast at the Origami Cafe. What can we expect from it? Um, yep, so that's due out in October um, with a, a fairly new publisher based in Scotland called Blue Diode Press, which is run by Rob McKenzie, um, poet. Um, it's a, it's I think they've published maybe four or so books so far. Um, so this one will be due out then, and it's my it's my first full collection. The other ones you refer to are pamphlets, so it's it's a longer um, a longer book in different um, sequences and stages. So yeah, I'm very excited excited it's been a dream of mine since I was quite young to publish a book of poems and it's taken me a while but it's finally happening yeah it's a it must be a great moment can you read us a poem from it yeah so I'll read you um a poem that we it's the, the concluding poem in the book um we we'd put everything together and then I, I had this one that I wanted to include and we were able to slip it in um at the end um, and it's inspired by um, a trip I took to Cornwall many, many, many years ago now. But it's one of those things where I don't know if you have sometimes in your life you have an experience or something that just kind of stays with you. And often that will be one that might be woven into a poem. So it's called Scent Ives. What do you do now the bread is eaten, the plates washed in the river and stacked? Now you've folded away timetables and maps to leave the coastal path and turn seawards through the silo and salt from the farm which seemed as good a place as any to ask the driver to stop. Now your tent is pitched amongst the rocks and the heather where you thought you'd never be able to live. What bright new example do you hope for? Last night you dreamt of the village again it's dark, violent streets, the woman still trundles up and down, pushing her barrel of flowers, the doorsteps and their little piles of bones. Then you woke to the sun, weighing your shadow with its accountable needle of light. And gulls, breathe now, it's only the gulls, lacing your thoughts with their cries. Well, Tess, that does that of being very beautiful, but also you feel like you're edging away from known coordinates into somewhere quite dark as well. <laughs> it was meant to be a more hopeful poem. <laughs> oh, we have, there's enough of hope around. <laughs> with the darkness. So, Tess, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, and and uh, I wish you all the best with this new book. And uh, so. Everybody listening, keep your eyes peeled for it. Breakfast at the Origami Cafe.
Well, thank you very, very much, Peter. It's been a privilege to be welcomed on. And um, as you said, we had some technical difficulties, so it's lovely that we've managed to, to complete our recording now. So thank you. So that was a wonderful interview with Tess. She talks very fluently, doesn't she, about this uh, the, the unsettling, the unsayable, the the ineffable. And I, particularly, I, I thought what she said about the scariness of the domestic. It's so true, isn't it? To set up a a weird, uncanny scene, it doesn't require anything more than you know, someone going to the fridge for a beer and and there's a sort of severed arm in there or something, <laughs> or maybe or maybe a doll. <laughs> yeah. Having a d- domestic setting it does make things really frightening because the things that are supposed to be familiar in your life are, have suddenly become strange to you, and that's yes. really profoundly unsettling. And she yes. does she does that pulls that trick off so well. Yes, um, yes, yes. I love the the night light. Um, you know, you you described it as like she was a room full of horrors that she was in there, and just certain things really sort of jump out and give you the give you the creeps, the glass eye on the oh, pillow. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose I should say as a bit of a disclaimer is that uh, we, we recorded this interview shortly before the release of her first full collection, which is called Breakfast at the Origami Cafe. And in fairness, I should say she's quite a, you know, she's not just about the uncanny. She does all kinds of poems. One of them particularly I love is called Frog, which is very funny indeed. But uh, so she's a, a very well-rounded writer, but she just has this skill to really put the willies up me, which um, I don't know. I don't think it should be underestimated somehow. No, I think uh, you're right. You're right. I've read other other of her work and um, she is a, a well-rounded poet for sure. I liked what Tess said at one point about a poem is a, a shape that contains something otherwise uncontainable. And in fact, there yeah. are lots of containers here, aren't there? And she talks about the the drawers in the Hove Museum, you know, containers for bits of dolls yeah, that's so creepy. That's yeah. made me laugh when I, I was picturing her in there doing that. <laughs> with their children. Yeah. <laughs> Family day out. Let's hear now Peter's interview with Christian Coopland of Neon Magazine. Neon Literary Magazine is a publication with a distinctive and exciting voice. It publishes poetry and prose and describes itself as sitting on the edge of horror and science fiction, but with strong literary leanings. It has just reached 50 issues, and I'd like to welcome its editor, Christian Coupland, to our podcast. Hi. So, 50 issues, congratulations, but practically speaking, that must be loads of work. I understand that you mainly work on your own, what keeps you sane and what keeps you motivated? Um, I think it, it helps a lot that I work on my own. So it's very quick and very easy to make decisions about anything. Um, there's nobody else I have to consult with. There's no meetings, nothing like that. Um, but I think also the fact that I, I really enjoy it. And so that makes it feel, although it is quite a lot of work, not like work at all. If you were loathing it, there's no way you could go through, <laughs> put yourself through 50, Absolutely 50 not. issues. In this podcast episode, we're having a look at the uncanny, um, things that are strange or mysterious, especially in an unsettling way. So can I start by asking you what sort of things, when you encounter them in a poem or a story, give you that shiver of fearful pleasure? Particularly within poetry, uh, a lot of it comes down to voice. 
So the right voice can be can create a deeply unsettling atmosphere, even when it's talking about something completely innocuous. Um, yeah, it, it might not be anything that you can necessarily put your finger on, but if there's something about the the voice or the sound of the poem that's off, that goes a long way to creating that kind of uncanny atmosphere that I enjoy so much. Why do you think that, you know, as readers, that we want to be scared? Is it the sort of, mm. phew, um, thank God that's not happening to me kind of thought, or something deeper? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, part of it, I think, is certainly that. It's um, it's why people find post-apocalyptic things fascinating, because uh, it's a way of exploring uh, destruction without actually uh, having it happen to you. But also, it's a strong emotional response, being horrified or unsettled by something uh, is a really dramatic response to have to a piece of art that, in a sense, is, is a lot of the time what we desire when we read literature. We want to have a strong response to it. We want to feel something, even if that something is um, being deeply unsettled. Yeah, I, qu- I quite agree. And it's when you feel horrified after reading something or unsettled that you can almost feel it in your body. Mm. I love how in Neon you sort of give a home to some serious literary work which has these science fiction and horror flavours. You know, even today you get the feeling that some editors are suspicious about admitting, you know, genre influences. Why do you think that is? Okay, so I I suppose it's because they perhaps have an idea of what that genre is. um, And so maybe they're not willing to be surprised by it. I think my idea of what science fiction is, my idea of what horror is, is quite uh, flexible. And so... I think there's you know, there's huge uh, territories within that um, that I'm really keen to explore. But perhaps if I hadn't read so much horror, hadn't read so much science fiction and hadn't enjoyed it so much, I'd be quite quick to write it off, I think. I'd argue that there's a long thread of the uncanny in poetry. Even like Dante and Milton, they're full of creepy, weird stuff. Um, you know, in your current issue of Neon, there's this poem sequence called Ams and the Golem by Andrew Nightingale. And he manages to tackle a really gothic subject, but make mm. it feel fresh and contemporary. The sequence starts with its narrator looking out of a cafe window and glimpsing a naked clay figure across the road. And he says, a sudden squall batters the figure as it shuts the pub door and sludges down George mm. Street, a misshapen pot flung from the wheel. I think it's just such a killer image at the end, you know, that sense of being spun out into the world and kind of being misshapen and so on. Absolutely Um, lovely, yeah. What is it about poetry that lends itself to being able to express the uncanny? All the simple questions here, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) We have different expectations of poetry. So perhaps when we're reading a novel, we expect to get something like the full story a lot of the time. And when we're reading a short story, we expect to get perhaps a glimpse of the the full story, as it were. We expect to get answers to our questions. Whereas I think poetry can be as effective even whilst leaving questions unanswered. It can be a glimpse or a very brief moment and still feel like it's complete without necessarily exploring every avenue that's available to it. How do you think the form of poetry and its ability to kind of carry ambiguity can suggest, you know, monsters without actually showing them. I, I mean, I think in in exactly that way, it can show you uh, a glimpse of something and then leave you to extrapolate the rest. Perhaps you take the same amount of time and you dedicate the same amount of thought and the same amount of imagination 
to reading a poem as you might to a longer story. And so there's more space for us to fill in the blanks. There's more space for us to imagine things and see things that, you know, they're hinted at on the page, but they're not explicitly described. Previously banging on about Freud's essay on the uncanny, mm. um, he says the, the uncanny is that class of terrifying which leads back to something long known to us, once very familiar. Um, so as I understand it, that seeing something you think you knew, uh, uh, but completely afresh, it makes me think of that sort of scenario if you had a teddy bear when you were a kid and you wanted it yeah. to speak and it didn't. And then suddenly, you know, one day when you're 30, it moves its beady little eyes and says hello at you. I mean, that would be genuinely uncanny. But other than scaring ourselves, do you think horror's got any lessons for us about, you know, society or morality or rather than just kind of giving ourselves a kind of subjective little thrill of horror? Definitely. Um, I think, like I say, there's many different kinds of horror. So perhaps there are many different kinds of um, value that horror has. Uh, but I think sometimes horror can be a way of learning about terrible things and uh, learning about what we want to avoid or, or what we find uncomfortable. And so it almost like a cautionary tale is it's reading horror as a way of learning uh, about things in the world that we want to avoid. You know, we can go close to them, we can be aware of them, but we don't actually have to experience them ourselves. Mm. Um and, you know, I'm sure there's, there's more subtle lessons as well that you get from horror. Before we began recording, you mentioned that you respond to a dreamlike quality in work. I like a certain amount of um, surreality. So um, a definition of the uncanny that I, I read once, I can't quite remember who said it, but it was something along the lines of, it, you know, the uncanny is when you're speaking to someone and you cannot determine if they are themselves or a robot impersonator of themselves uncertainty about what is real what is unreal what is artificial um i i find that very powerful and very compelling uh so i i definitely look for that in fiction and poetry that i publish and one way of describing that is is dreamlike because in a dream you're often quite unsure whether things are real or whether they're unreal they're dreams that are made of real elements in that we go out into the world we see things we uh, imbibe experiences and images and things like that and then when we sleep that gets jumbled around in our head to make these weird variations so it's it's this impossible uncanny bizarre narratives made out of elements of real things yeah um, i think that's that's very powerful and uh, i really enjoy reading it so that's probably yeah. what i mean by dreamlike I think of um, Kafka's Metamorphosis. I, mm. I really like things where pretty much everything is as it should be, apart from one central thing that you wake up as a cockroach. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, and then what would follow logically from that? I, I think that's a great kind of structure. So what about your own writing? Because uh, beyond editing Neon, you're, you're quite a busy bee, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I try and get a lot done. Uh, mostly what I write is uh, short stories, although I've started uh, branching out recently into other forms, like I I make uh, fun little playable text-based adventure games, that kind of thing. And uh, I'm starting to get into making uh, videos and video essays and things like that. Basically, I'm interested in anything with words and anything, I guess you could call the short form, uh, rather than uh, the novel length format. Beyond your reading of material sent into the magazine, 
what do you read for fun and, and does poetry feature in that at all uh yeah definitely i, I love reading poetry and it's something i i treat myself to very often yeah. it's a, it's an interesting thing reading a poetry book because you can often do it in one sitting but you often don't want to do it in one sitting you want to give it uh room to breathe which turns the act of reading into in part an act of waiting or meditating um so it's a very different thing uh compulsively consuming uh, a fiction book and perhaps more thoughtfully reading poetry yeah. um but yeah i i do read poetry uh, i read a lot of fiction um and i'm currently reading alive which is a book about a plane that crashed in the andes and oh, yeah. uh, how the the people on board that plane survived which is um, you know, it's it's true. It's nonfiction, but it's a a different kind of horror. Horribly <laughs> cannibalistic, as I remember it. Very much so. Yeah. And <laughs> um, you wrote a blog post about submitting work to editors. I think that proved very popular. But one of the things you were talking about was not flattering editors when you write in the covering letter. Um, is that a particular bugbear of yours? I mean, being praised and flattered in emails. <laughs> um. Yeah, no, it's it's just unnecessary. I'd I'd much rather um, people don't don't try and be interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, really, because it's, it, it's it's not necessary. Like I I much prefer just a very boring, very straightforward cover letter. I think I think that's fairly universal. Yeah. Um, which I, I guess might seem counterintuitive, but at the same time, there's you know like uh, well put together simple straightforward cover letter is a work of art in itself okay chrisland thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and um i for one am about to subscribe to neon having discovered it it only took me 50 issues but i think it's a, such a great little magazine thank you so much you should be so proud of it thank you thank you for having me It's, it's always interesting, isn't it, hearing from magazine editors and clearly Christian is, uh, I mean, it's amazing that he does all of the work all in his own, although I know that's not unusual. There'll be magazine editors who might listen to this and say, well, so do we. But it's always interesting to get their take on the poems that they're presented with, the work that they're presented with and what they look for, isn't it? I, I'm always fascinated by that. The fact that people run magazines on their own, I think the, the plus is that you get a real sense of personality about that. There's no compromises, you know, there's no negotiation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I suppose the plus of that is that, you know, the, the vision can remain pure, whereas the idea of uh, publications run by committee, I don't know how easy, no names uh, mentioned. How easy that is. But, <laughs> you know, it's more democratic and, and yeah, obviously involving yeah. more people with different viewpoints, but I'm not yeah, saying one is uh, right or the other is right. No, I'd, I agree that there are different ways of, doing it and the, the certainly certain foremost magazines are famously run by uh, rotating groups of people it works very well for them but I can yeah. see what you're saying there's the risk that there's an inconsistency from one issue to another in terms of tone of voice and selection yeah and ethos and of course, talking about magazine editors, they are the people who have the power to say yes or no when we send our poems in. So, Robin, you've been thinking about dealing with rejection. <laughs> How the hell do you do it? 
Yes, the thorny issue for this episode, rejection. I think the first thing, and it's obvious and everybody says this, the first thing is if you've sent a poem to a magazine or a group of poems and they are rejected, it is the poems that have been rejected. Of course, one takes it personally, as often it's personal work, but it's not you as a person that's been rejected. (laughs) Yeah. John Paul Sartre talks about a waiter being really living in what he called bad faith because any criticism of him and his his job or what he was doing or if anybody slighted him as a waiter, he, he took it personally as a slight on his own self. And what he'd forgotten was it was something that he'd chosen to do. So armed with this, when I left university, I applied that to what I'd written. And if a poem that I'd written was rejected, it wasn't exactly as you said, it wasn't myself. Um, That's the theory. But yeah, I mean, I think especially if you invested loads of time and preparing a submission and it's rejected and, you know, it's usually rejected for all kinds of good reasons. But it's important to sulk and be really cross and upset for at least 24 hours. Yes, I, I find, you know, the next day I'm fine, but I think it's perfectly okay to feel hacked off about it because yeah, yeah. if it's not important to you, then why are you doing it really? Well, that's that's a very good point, of course. But in that spirit, then perhaps there are some rules to sort of bear in mind, which is mm. do not respond, particularly in the first 24 hours. And unfortunately, yeah. a lot of people do. And I've, t- I've spoken to magazine editors and they've all got stories of this. Um, yeah, lots of people do re- respond. To yes, that. yes, and yeah. unbelievable how people go on. And sometimes, and the trouble is, if somebody responds, then the editor has to remember not to take the bait, because then sometimes they get into these back and forths, and that's yeah. incredibly draining for everybody concerned. And like you said, poems get rejected for all kinds of reasons, and it's not necessarily that they don't particularly rate you as a poet or that they don't see a lot of merit in the poems they've rejected. It could be that they've already got three poems in that issue about grandmothers or something, or it, you know, it's not going to sit well with the poems they've already selected for that issue. Or it could be that they like a poem, but there's just one thing that's just like niggling them that they're not quite sure about. So, Yeah, I used to, <clears throat> a long time ago now, edit a, an online magazine back in, like 2001 or something. So I had to reject quite a few people. So in my limited experience, it, it was about exactly that thing about not quite fitting in or um, it was painfully obvious that they'd never actually spent more than 10 seconds on the website. I, I did this very recently with a, a magazine that I, I found uh, and it ticked all my boxes in terms of what I thought I liked in a magazine. But I got overexcited and I, I just thought, this is great, and just sent off something without really thinking it through uh, and sort of jumped the gun and then, you know, kind of really rude what I'd sent them because I don't think it was appropriate. And, mm. you know, it was rejected. And, of course, it was rejected. I knew it would be. So you have to look at yourself and think, actually, the, the rejection occurred because, you know, I just didn't know the publication well enough. I, I think that's I think that's a big one, actually. I mean, I've done that, exactly that. I've... I've written something, I thought, it's pretty good, it'll go really well here, and I've shot it off. And then when it comes back as a rejection six months later and I read it again, I'm thinking, yeah, well, I could have spent a bit longer on that. But one thing for me, what I, a lot of people say, when something gets rejected, just you know, send it straight out again to the next publication. I've never really felt 
able to do that because it feels too much like a sort of a knee jerk. It's back to that thing of don't do anything with 24 hours. You know, I, I sort of, I tend to put it away for a little while before I look at it again, because a, a bit of time and distance makes it easier to look at it coolly and say, yeah, that mm-hmm. perhaps wasn't my best work. Another do, thing I... Do I, you I find was, that happens a, a lot? Because I'm finding work that I wrote sort of three or four years ago I was I was convinced it was some of the best stuff I've ever done. And I looked at it again recently and thought, this is really substandard, you know. So yeah. I, I found that quite depressing, you know, because Did I thought well, I I'm not old and wise enough to be able to see, you know, what was my own good writing, let alone other people's. That shows that you've got better judgment now or you've got, you've got uh, you know, you've matured in your writing. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's worse if you pick something out three years later and think, that was a fine damn poem, that bastard rejected it you know because you haven't moved on in that sense but 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 having said that I do sometimes pull something out that's very old and I think yeah I can see this isn't a great poem but there's sometimes there's something in it yeah that I'm gonna Mm. still work on on that and the other thing I think gives you distance is to have some sort of record keeping so you've got a spreadsheet or something where you you've got a record of what you've sent and where when you've sent it and when it comes back you put it in a different column or whatever it takes and just going through that kind of bookkeeping process I find again helps me keep a bit of distance from it so it's just another thing that a bit of paper that has to be moved from one box to another I don't have a column that says rejected I don't use the word rejected I put declined is declined, my word yeah. do you have that kind of system um something i would yeah because you told me about yours and i sort of copied it and i do have a record of what i sent out where which i think is always useful i think one of the things i've noticed because i'm quite old now i'm 60 i found that the, the sort of poetic landscape has changed a lot in my lifetime because I, I was first published when i was something like 22 or something oh and really I, and I found that I've actually had poems that have been published. I think my record is something like 17 years after I wrote it. And, <laughs> That's good. And, That's really good. And, and that you write it at the, at the time, nobody wants to touch it with a barge pole, but the sand, the sands move. And, you know, you might find that something that everybody hated, you know, 17 years ago is now snapped up. And, and, that, and that was actually, that an un, was that a poem that had a, that had been unchanged in 17 years or had you worked yeah. on it? Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, things do change. So, you know, you change as a writer. The, what's in fashion changes yeah, as well. Yeah. And editors change in magazines. So you might find yourself banging your head against a wall, you know, with one editor and then be picked up when that editor changes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And um... Or the reverse, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the, other, the other thing that I like to do is I always like to have something out so that when something comes back, at least I'm not sitting there thinking, well, that's everything. I've got everything, you know, it's all gone, all been rejected. Like, you've got something that's still under consideration. So it's important to send something out every now and again, I think. What do you think about these uh, people that say, I'm aiming for a hundred rejections this year? Or It's a bit like the old thing from, um, I remember sales training, you know, where you're told, you know, if you're doing like phone cold calling, you know, you should be really pleased with every rejection you get because it means you're one closer to a sale. It's like, yeah. Well, that's one twisted way of looking at it. Um, <laughs> one more brain cell gone. Yeah, I don't quite get that. I guess that's, it's just another way of looking at it. And for some people, it works. Not for me, though, personally. I mean, does that does that work for you? Yippee, rejection. No. I'm closer to getting an acceptance. 
No, that would I find that appalling. And what I mean, if you never get an acceptor? So you have like yeah. 100, 200, 300. How, how long do you keep going yeah. just using that as your motivation? That, that's a tricky one. You need to be a bit bloody-minded to keep going in the face of rejection. But, you know, maybe there's a time when you realise that, you know, you're being constantly rejected because what you're writing isn't very good or, you know, nobody's interested in it. Or maybe you're still trying for not the right outlets for your work. I think mm. one can aim for certain publications and um, and then actually there's somewhere else that would that would love to publish your work. There are over, uh, hundreds of magazines in this country, but print and online. Yeah. And and sometimes if you get into your head, I want to be in, you know, Poetry London, um, it, it may never happen. I'll never be in Poetry London. I really don't write the sort of poetry they're, they're into. I, I know that. But that's okay. There's other magazines where it sits well, so that's, mm. that's fine. What I have to fight against is kind of periodic collapses in confidence. And there are times when I'm feeling up and, you know, very much in the space of sending work out and in inviting all that stuff. And the other times, the times that you're feeling lowest in life is when you'll receive like three rejections in one week. You know, it's just like, <laughs> yeah. oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I'm a fairly sunny sort of person most of the time in my my black humoured sort of way. And I'm fairly confident about poetry, but... But that only comes with getting published in places, doesn't it? I played golf for a short period of time, not not very long, We, for various reasons. I remember a bad golfer, as I was, could take 150 shots to get around 18 holes, you know. And it's, it, you're absolutely, you, get, you come to the 120th shot of the game and you're thinking, you've lost the will to live, you know, another <laughs> 10, 10 shots to get in the bloody hole. And then suddenly you do one shot and it is a dream you're in the zone and it's like that was easy all I got to do is do that every time and then you come away from that game you're thinking wow you know there's something in this I'm going to keep going it's a bit like that with this I think you know you get one decent acceptance and then it g's you up for the next hundred rejections (laughs) but you do need one occasionally I think well I certainly do